With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Today on the iTest on the Sick Podcast Network, Pierre McGuire and I look at the Minnesota Wild and also Detroit Red Wings, but then we welcome on a very special guest. The legendary Scotty Bowman joins us very shortly. Turn up your volume, because you're about to listen to The Sick Podcast. The Eye Test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy. The Stanley Cup winning Colorado Avalanche. And after 22 years, Raymond The Sickest NHL Podcast. It's going to be sick. Hey, Jimmy Murphy here, back with Pierre Maguire on the iTest on the Sick Podcast Network. Pierre, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Jimmy. Great to visit with you. I'm very excited about our upcoming guest. Yeah, me too. It's always a joy to talk to Scotty Bowman. Uh, just a wealth of hockey knowledge, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit, and you'll see what we're talking about. Pierre, uh, look, you and I have been talking about the Minnesota Wild and their issues, and you know, both of us saying it's not really all on Dean Everson, but... There comes a time sometimes when a GM has no choice but to pull the coach and, and make the change there behind the bench. And that's exactly what happened as they bring in John Hines the other day, shortly after we recorded our last episode. Um, your take on that change and what can John Hines bring to this team? Well, first of all, it comes down to a sense of familiarity type hire. Billy Guerin worked with John Hines when John was coaching in Wilkes-Barre Scranton for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Billy was the point man for a lot of those teams. So John and B- Billy had a great relationship. Ray Shiro, remember, was a general manager of record in Pittsburgh when Johnny was coaching in Wilkesbury. Mm-hmm. And it was Ray Shiro that hired John Hines to coach the New Jersey Devils. Ray Shiro now is a special assistant to Billy Guerin. So the sense of familiarity, bringing in somebody that you know, somebody that really understands the players, um, and they, I think they have a lot of confidence. Now, that's not a knock on Dean Evison, by the way. Jimmy, really important to stress that. Yeah. Last night, if you watch their game with St. Louis, a couple minor tweaks. First of all, their penalty kill, which was worst in the league, was four for four last night on the penalty kill against St. Louis. Their power play, which was 25th in the league going into the game, they they didn't score on the power play, but they generated chances. They only had one opportunity, but they generated chances. But the thing to me is you could see they were playing with a little more pace. I think it's a team – that sense they needed more pace and they're playing with more pace, at least after one game. Yeah. And obviously Pierre too, every time a team gets a new coach behind the bench, that first game, they get the bump, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe even it lasts for a few games. So we'll really see the influence he's having. I'd say more towards the five, six game, seven stretch, but yeah, they did have the penalty kill was better, but I look back at John Hines too, Pierre, and I look at his time in New Jersey. And I I think I, you might've touched on this the other day with Mitch Melnick actually, and just, you know, they were a team in transition when he was there. They were bringing up a lot of young kids. And I, I felt like maybe around the NHL, he didn't get enough credit for the job he did with the development of those kids that are now pivotal players for the New Jersey Devils. So maybe if you could just elaborate on that a little more. 
Well, I think that's a great point. Um, and one of the guys that was there and was helping him was Ray Shiro, obviously. Ray Shiro put a lot of those young players into place. So did Tommy Fitzgerald. So, you know, you look at it, there's a lot of carryover there with this. But, yes, the development of a lot of the young players in New Jersey can be directly tied to John Hines and his coaching staff at the time. Alan Nazardine was one of those guys who did a great job with their young defensemen. But I would agree with that 100%. And, and that's one of the things, Jimmy, we've talked about it a lot. And I think Scotty Bowman would agree to this. The truth is the number one thing now for a lot of these staffs, because they're up against the cap, you got to develop players at the NHL level because you're rushing a lot of guys to the NHL. And if you don't have a coaching staff that can develop players at the NHL level, you're not going to be very successful. On that note, then, who's a player that you think maybe the new staff under Hines focuses in on that's a young player that is, maybe was rushed a bit, but he, he has a chance to make his imprint on the team now? Brock Faber. And I watched him last night and I thought he was outstanding in the game, played over 25 minutes in the game. I think we'll see his ice time go up uh, as they get more and more comfortable with him. So he's one. I remember Brock was a University of Minnesota guy drafted in the first round by the LA Kings, comes over in a trade a couple summers ago, and it looks like he's going to be a real good player for them. I thought Jonas Brodeen, who's an established player, uh, was fantastic last night in that game for Minnesota. So the young player, the one that I expect is really going to evolve for Minnesota, I think will be Brock Faber. Yeah, I'd agree too. And Pierre, let's switch gears now. Another thing that we have been talking about over the past couple of weeks is Patrick Kane. But all, more specifically, we've been really high in the Red Wings. We've been watching this team start to bring it together. And now they finally do sign Patrick Kane. And I got to give credit to you, Pierre, not just doing this because you're my friend and my co-host here. But, you know, back in September 28th, because I wrote about it on Boston Hockey Now, I, I remember you were, you were one of the first people to link the Red Wings to Patrick Kane. And a lot of people said, the Red Wings? What are, what are you talking about? But why did you think that it was a good chance that he would sign up there? Uh, one, because they're an enlightened organization. Two, because Steve Eisenman respects skill. Three, because they spent a lot of collateral to go out and get Alex Dabrinkit. If you look at Patrick Kane's best years in Chicago, I know everybody equates it to him and Jonathan Taves, but really his best offensive year was probably with Alex Dabrinkit. Um, so there's a tie in there. And I think the biggest thing is Detroit is tired of not having won playoff series. They haven't won a playoff series since 2013, and they haven't been in the playoffs for the last seven years. I think with Patrick Kane, it's one of those where it puts him over the top in terms of a playoff position. At least I think it will, as long as they can stay healthy. And to me, if you look at it, when Patrick Kane, before he went to play for the London Knights, he lived at Pat Verbeek's house in Detroit. He played uh, before the London Knights in Detroit. So I think he's very comfortable in the city of Detroit. And quite frankly, I think it's really a great fit. And, and I think Patrick will do well there. I think the Red Wings will do well there. But I like the enlightened managerial style of Steve Eiserman and his staff there. I think they did a magnificent job, Jimmy. Well, one of the things we were talking about off air, Pierre, and I, you know, I was saying, well, I'm still worried about that blue line. And you made a great point. They've got something coming that could really help that blue line. It may not be to later in the season, but they've got a guy coming that could really change things around on the blue line, don't they? Yeah, Simon Edvinson is about a six foot four, 205-pound defenseman that plays for Grand Rapids. He's their third leading scorer right now. It's not all about points with this player. I watched him a ton over in Sweden uh, playing for Frolunda. Uh, he's athletic. 
He's extremely quick. He's so smooth. He moves the puck fantastically well. He can be on your power play. He can be on your penalty kill. He can play in a shutdown role. He's one of those guys that I know Detroit likes to keep their guys marinating down in the American Hockey League, Jimmy. And it's a great line from the former general manager there, Kenny Holland. He'd rather have players be overripe than underdeveloped. And I think that's probably part of the thing with Simon Edvinson right now. He played nine games in the NHL last year. I think you're going to see as the season goes along, he'll get more. But let's not forget, they went out and got Jeff Petrie. He's a proven player. They got Ben Chirac. He's a big physical guy. Um, you know, they've got Jake Wallman. He's a guy that won a national championship at Providence College as a leader. So they've got some pieces in place in defense that I think obviously is tremendous. And we all do not talk enough about Maurice Sider. We just don't talk about him enough. It's crazy. He's just one of the silent stars, I like to call him, in the yeah. NHL. I'm with you, Pierre. And he's he's such a dynamic player. I love watching. Between the pipes, too, Pierre, I mean, look, I kind of look – my take from afar is that maybe Eisman looking at the goaltending situation, it's probably is this team – and I'm talking not this season, but I'm talking years down the line – their guy isn't there yet. But he's done some great scouting, bringing in guys that can fill the gap. And one of the guys that, you know – we talk about the Florida Panthers and the run they went on in the playoffs last year. And yeah, Bobrovsky was the man for that run, basically. But they didn't get to the playoffs with Bobrovsky between the pipes, did they? And that guy now yeah. is in Detroit. Yeah, Alex Lyon. That's a great point. The former goaltender from Yale University where he played for Keith Elaine. Um, Alex Lyon's done some good work for Detroit, too, recently, Jimmy, as you know. Yep. Um, Detroit's won three games in a row, uh, and I don't think people are talking enough about where they are in the standings. If the playoffs started today, the Detroit Red Wings would be in the playoffs. Now, I know we've got a long way to go. I get it. Yeah. But don't think Patrick Kane's not going to help them. Oh. And, again, we talk about enlightened management style by Steve Eiserman and his scouts. Um, I look at getting JT Comfort. I look at a year ago getting uh, mm. Cop. Um, you know, and out of Winnipeg. And so you, you'll start to look at it. David Perron. You start to look at the guys that they've added as a managerial team. Uh, they deserve a lot of credit there in Detroit. And, and they're amateur players. They got a ton coming. That's on Chris Draper, who's done a fantastic job as a director of scouting. They're, Detroit is one of the teams. You know, everybody talks about Buffalo and everybody talks about Ottawa, and they should. Those are good up-and-coming teams. Detroit is right in there and maybe ahead of them, quite frankly. Yeah. I'm with you too. And you look at, it seems to me, Pierre is the, the blueprint that Stevie's using there is very similar to what he did in Tampa Bay draft, draft, draft. Well, mm -hmm. and then you just mentioned, I love that you brought up those guys like an Andrew cop targeted signings, not like, you know, big splash type signings, targeted signings that fill a specific need and then will help as time goes on and blend in with the younger guys. So think about it. Their best players, Dylan Larkin, University of Michigan, of Michigan course. guy. JT Comfort, University of Michigan, Michigan yeah. guy. Cop, Michigan. So, mm -hmm. you know, they they understand. They've done their research. They've done their fact-finding. There's a, there's a reason why they go out and identify and get players. Now, I know the one guy that breaks the mold is Petrie. He's Michigan State. It's okay. He's still yeah. a Michigan guy. <laughs> so, you, know, you look at it. Um, there's a lot to like there. And, I, again, I really I, I respect people that do their due diligence. It's a big part of the eye test, Jimmy. And, yep. and in Detroit, they're passing with flying colors. They really are. Got it. And one guy, just because I know him, I got to give him props because I do think he had some of the development 
get some of the development credit here is my friend Ryan Martin. I thought he did a great job when he was in Detroit. Of course, he's on with the Rangers, who the Red Wings will play tonight. And by the way, for everyone out there, I just heard it confirmed. Adam Fox back in the lineup for the New York Rangers. That's a huge get for them to have back in there. But before you know, we get to Scotty Bowman here, why don't we talk about the coach of the Detroit Red Wings, Pierre? And Derek Lalonde, I didn't know a lot about him, just that he was an assistant in Tampa. But, you know, as he's gotten Detroit, I, as I've told everyone here, I love Detroit Red Wings when I was growing up. I still follow them. I've been really impressed with him. Like, I, I didn't understand how well he does with the young kids. And I, I've noticed it. I read up on it a lot. I'm really impressed with Derek Laurent here. Well, first of all, the power play is a big part of what he does, and he's done a real good job with it. Uh, he's a tactician, and I really like that. Uh, he's got some energy and passion behind the bench at the appropriate time. I really admire that. I think he learned a lot down in Tampa. Obviously, you go to three straight Stanley Cup final mm-hmm. um, with the Tampa Bay Lightning. You win two out of three. That's pretty heady stuff. And so Derek gets his opportunity after the third Stanley Cup where they didn't win in, in Colorado. But that being said, I mean, to go to three straight, that's very impressive. And and you learn. I can speak to it. And our next, next guest, obviously, was Scotty Bowman. He's been through it so many times. He won 14 Cups. Think about it. Nine as a coach and five as an executive. Um, but I can tell you this right now. We went to back-to-back Cups in 91 and 92 in Pittsburgh. And every time you go through the – chase to win the cup you learn so much about coaching you learn so much about managing people you learn so much about the game and everybody says oh the stanley cup this and the stanley cup that until you've been through it you know nothing about it you know nothing about it you can think you know but until you've been there you know nothing about it let me ask you this period on that note you went through two that was it tougher the second time around because everybody is gunning for you and you got that bullseye on your back. It, it was a little bit more difficult, but one of the things that really helped us is we had the luxury of having a head coach that never panicked. And with Scotty Bowman, we were down, people forget this. We were down three games to one to the Washington Capitals in the first round. Yep. We were an aggressive two, one, two, four checking team. They were killing us with their offensive defensemen in Washington. They were jumping Cal Johansson and Sylvan Cote and Ally Afraidy and Kevin Hatcher into the rush all the time. Mm-hmm. And they were just blowing by us, and they were killing us. Yeah. And Scotty said, you know what, we got to change. And to change in the middle of a series and to make it work because we had no wiggle room, we were down 3-1, mm-hmm. we were going into game five in Washington. We had to win game five just to prolong the series. We changed our neutral zone. We changed our forecheck. We changed our matchups. And that was it. But that because our head coach was calm, cool, and collected and had been through it before, Jimmy. It's a huge thing. It really is. And, you know, I remember Terry Murray, the former coach of the Washington Capitals, looking at our bench once going, I'm almost like ready to give up. <laughs> Scott, he was just masterminding everything. What the heck just happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, of course, you're there front row for a Pierre. Well, you know, you and Scotty were both front row for this, and that, that whole comeback led to this moment. So let's go right now to 1992, Game 4 in Chicago at the old stadium there. Uh, let's check it out. Left side of the net, three seconds. Pittsburgh has indeed won back-to-back Stanley Cups for the Badgers. Yager, Stevens, Scotty Bowman, Mario O'Neill, Barrasso, and Steady. And the rest of the Penguins have won two Stanley Cups. This one 
Well, I bet that brings back some memories, huh? Yeah, some really good memories. Obviously, Chicago Stadium in particular, what an amazing uh, place for hockey and what an amazing place for fans to watch. But what I loved about what you just showed, Jimmy, that embrace between Mike Keenan and Scotty Bowman, if it weren't for Scotty, Mike probably would have been a little bit longer in terms of getting an opportunity. It was Scotty that hired him to coach the Rochester Americans back in the early 1980s when Scotty was running the Buffalo Sabres. Rochester back then and still is their farm team. But it was Scotty that gave Mike Keenan an opportunity to coach uh, at the professional level. And obviously Mike did a great job. He took that team to a Calder Cup uh, championship in Rochester and then the Philadelphia Flyers hired him. But you know, I see that picture, and, and uh, on the Chicago bench, it was Daryl Sutter and, and Mike, and on our bench, it was Rick Keel, myself, and, and and Scotty. And, you know, think about it now. that That's a, that's a lot of years ago. But there was yeah. some pretty significant brain power. Pretty I hear you. Well, speaking of, let's bring on the architect of it all right now, Scotty Bowman, joining us here on the eye test, Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy. Scotty, how are you? Good. I hope you can see me, but it's a little dark. But No, you look great. You look great. Yeah. Perfect. Pierre, I'll let you start it off here. Scotty, I got it. Let's just start off. Thank you so much for joining us. It really means a lot. And, and you look fantastic. Last time I saw Scotty, full disclosure, was at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And Scotty, you were holding court right there in the West and it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was a good trip. I haven't gone up uh, as much as I should, but with Mike Vernon and Tommy Verasso going in, uh, I got a nice invitation, so I was I was happy to go to see them. I mean, they meant they meant a lot to our teams, uh, both in Detroit and Tommy in Buffalo, and then in Pittsburgh. Scotty, can you take us through the drafting of Tommy Brasso? I don't think you get enough credit for that and the vision you had to have as an organization in Buffalo that to draft a player out of Acton Boxborough High School and see him come into the NHL and flourish as an eighteen-year-old goalie. Well. All the credit really should go to the late uh, Bucky Kane was his name. He was a, a part-time scout with Buffalo, actually with, with the Boston first. And then uh, when Punch Imlach, you know, he had a connection with Boston because he was with Springfield when they were a farm team. He went to Buffalo uh, after a long, successful career with Toronto. And uh, when I got to Buffalo in 79, Bucky Kane was on board as a, a scout around the Boston area. And he, we, so we, we took him on. And then I liked him so much that he went in Ontario and Quebec for juniors. And the year before we drafted Tommy, uh, Bucky started on, on all the scouts. And he, he was pretty vocal. And he said, there's a goalie here that can shoot a puck harder than some of your NHL players. <laughs> and he's only 17. And, I, and they went on and on. And, and the, the funny part was uh, after we investigated everything, and I went to see him a couple of times and, and no, no reflection. I mean, his backup goalie, now we're talking 1983 or 80, I guess, yeah, he was drafted in 83. So it's 80, 82, 83 season. His backup goalie was a girl who didn't play much. I mean, we're talking like how many years? That's 20, 40, that's 30, you know, really 40 years ago. But anyways, uh, Bucky was the reason. Bucky Kane, a, a man that was a, a custodian at a school from Mattapan in Mass. Wonderful that. man. Uh, you know, passed away very early after uh, I left Buffalo, and uh, we became very good friends. But he just uh, he said, "This goalie's six foot three. 
He's got an edge to him. He can shoot a puck. He said he's going to save your defense a lot of heartaches. And everything came through. And I give Bucky Kane the real reason why we drafted him. I mean, he was an early pick. Uh, we drafted, I think he was fifth pick. I'm not sure. But because uh, Phil Housley was drafted the year before at number six. And he was a high school player. And that was uh, an ex, another scout we had. We had good scouts. Rudy Miguel, the late Rudy Miguel. He was a wonderful scout, and he he spotted Phil. I went up to watch Phil play, and but that's how we got Tommy Bucky Kane. Scotty, you talk about all those great legends. Don't forget your brother Jack as well, who was on the staff. Your late brother Jack, who did such a good job for the Sabers for so many years. Scotty, can you talk about when you got hired away by the Montreal from the Montreal Canadiens to the St. Louis Blues by Lynn Patrick, and how much that helped change maybe your career? Well, I was, yeah, I was kind of fortunate, Pierre, because you know I had played junior hockey, and uh, and I, I was I was not thinking at the time that being an NHL coach, but I, I was you know pretty devastated. I got a bad injury, and and I and I got a job with a paint company, and I I was very fortunate because my boss allowed me to take long lunch hours, and I I coached the junior B team. Well, actually, I coached out, outdoor hockey first for a year or two in my hometown in Verdun. And then I, I got a chance to coach a, an independent junior B team in a, in a junior B league in Montreal. We had a pretty good season. We had older players and uh, we went to the finals and got beat. And then I got an offer to go to, to uh, Ottawa with the junior Canadians. They moved to, to Ottawa. And uh, the late Sam Pollock was a coach when I got injured, gave me an opportunity and I, I left the paint company, and uh, and you're right. I was kind of fortunate, and I coached around junior for, well, the first uh, first two years with Hull Ottawa, uh, Ottawa Canadians the first year, and then Hull. Then I went to Peterborough for three years, and in those days, Pierre, every summer they call you in and tell you what you're going to do, and they I I had coached the assistant coach one year, and then full time coach uh, head coach for four years, and they said. Our head scout for Eastern Canada has gone to the Rangers, the late Lou Passador. He was mm -hmm. a wonderful man, good friend of mine. And they said, now you're going to be the head scout. I said, well, I like to coach. They know you're going to be the scout. <laughs> so I, I went scouting for, oh, my goodness, uh, 60. We're talking now, like I finished Peterborough, 61. I went on a scout, uh, well, I guess three years I was scouting before I got a chance to go back coaching. And I had the chance during those three years to see, uh, I think it would be 13 years old. He might have just turned his birthday was in March, Bobby Orr. <laughs> I saw Bobby play in, and that was another story because the Boston Bruins were already on Bobby. Uh, I give all the credit to Lynn Patrick, or to uh, Ren Blair. Yeah. And uh, they, they were on, on top of it. And, uh, uh, you know, they had, they had a heads up with everybody, but Ren Blair was their director of scouting, and you know he knew him. everybody knew him. But but they they were they were ahead of the game. And I went to see two other players. I had I had I hadn't seen them play, but I had a chance to see him play because he was playing for Parry Sound, and they go by population in Ontario, and they were in the C division because they don't have a lot of people there, and they played a, a team in Ontario, and we we were all looking at two players in Ontario. It's so quite a story because I was I was living with a bunch of football players in a rooming house in Ottawa. I was hardly there because I was scouting, and the 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 guy that owned the house was a big football fan, 
And so I, I liked him. And I said, do you want to, it was in March. I said, do you want to come for a nice drive? It's an hour and a half. I said, I'm going to watch some, two good, two good players on one team. And the other one's probably gone. So he didn't know about hockey. After five minutes, after I gave him the two guys, I said, watch number eight and number 17. And then after about five minutes, he said, you can forget about those two. That little guy, number two. And he was about, <laughs> he, he was, Bobby was about five foot four. And mm. uh, he hadn't had his growth spurt yet. And uh, within two years, he went to Oshawa, of course, Boston, with the rest is history. Scotty, you talked about Sam Pollock before. How much did Sam Pollock influence your career, and what made Sam so great? Well, Sam was always prepared. Uh, he, he had a business side to, to the hockey side, and he, 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 tr he trusted people that worked for him. I think the biggest asset he had is he wasn't a one-man gang, and he, he naturally made the final choices all the time. But he, he was a workaholic on, on hockey. He's also in, in the business side. So I, I think the reason that the Canadians were so successful is he wor He started in 1947. He, he worked about 17 years before he became the general manager. And then when he became the general manager, he knew all the minor league. Uh, he, he also had a bit of an edge on a lot of teams. When the league expanded in 67, he was able to get to a lot of the governor's meetings and he he got to know a lot of the owners and in those days the expansion teams didn't get a lot of NHL players and we didn't get a lot of draft choices and he was able to make trades with owners. I mean, the, the West Division were getting impatient because, you know, we, we weren't as good as the East for sure, but we were together. That, that was with the vision of the President Clarence Campbell and uh, you, I don't know if people know the reason the NHL expanded is there was a very strong league in, in Western Canada. It was led by a very smart gentleman, Al Leader. It's called the Western Hockey League. And he kept going into Montreal and visiting with Clarence Campbell and saying, you know, we want to be the Western arm of the NHL. This would be around probably 63, 64. But the NHL was starting to flourish because Chicago had come out of the doldrums. They had Holland Makita. They were they won the cup in '61. The league was doing well, and they didn't they didn't want to really expand, and and they didn't want to have a, a, a this Western League. And then maybe a year later, the Western League said, "Well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna start our own own pro, pro league." So the the people that ran the NHL got in a hurry, said, "Look, hang with this." I mean. We're not going to have a, a competitor. I mean, they did get one later, five years later. But the Western Division, that was Clarence, the, the late Clarence, Clarence Campbell, the president. He had a vision. He said, well, you know, we're not going to give up. Sam Pollock was looking after the, the way the draft was going to work. And the, the other owners were happy that he wasn't going to give much away. So, you know, we, we all survived. But we only got about, I think in the draft, I'm pretty sure, we got about three or four NHL players because the teams are allowed to protect. I think it was like 12 players and the 13th player was available on each team. And then they would pull back number 14. So we, we only got three NHL players, three or four, but we were competitive among each other. And I've always said that uh, it's one of the most astounding things in hockey that, the, that the, the Philadelphia Flyers started with the rest of the teams in 1967. And can you imagine in seven years, 
they were able to win a Stanley Cup. It's, it was an amazing accomplishment by the entire Philadelphia organization. Well, I want to go down that road. I'm glad you brought up the Philadelphia Flyers, Scotty. Your first cup in Montreal as a head coach was in 1973. But in 1976, you played the Philadelphia Flyers in the final. That was their third trip to the final. They had won the previous two years. That was considered maybe the changing of the guard because the Broad Street bullies after that ceased to exist in the eyes of a lot of people. And one of the real moments in that series was Larry Robinson fighting Dave Schultz and getting the better of him. How much of that do you remember, Scotty? Well, I do remember a lot about Philadelphia because they were starting to really develop their team about 1972-73, and they were playing a different style. They were a tough team. They, Bobby Clark was a great player. They had Rick McClish. They were really skilled players, but they, they surrounded them with a lot of really hardworking players that came in the late drafts or minor leagues. So, when, when, you know, I remember one time we would play training camp games and we were starting to come along in Montreal because we got Lafleur in 71 and Robinson in 71, and then we had a good nucleus, and then we got Steve Schott in 72, Bob Ganey in 73. And so by the time, by the time we were ready to play against uh, Philadelphia, we used to play them preseason games. And, you know, they were just battles. And, and then my assistant at the time, Claude Ruel, we, we'd, we'd have it, uh, all our players in Montreal. We'd play a home-and-home. And they would come with all their tough guys. And, 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 and remember Claude said to me one night after one of the – we played them every year. Sam Pollock would – because we could both draw people. And he, he said, well, I don't know why we play these guys. We, we play them enough during the season. All they want to do is fight. And so we, he said, you know, we put our good players on the ice in Philadelphia or in Montreal. Then we go to Philadelphia. And, and you know, we, so we took a bunch of tough players. What, what, we had a lot of guys in the minors. Oh, my God, the names. Glenn Goldup and Joe Lupien. And, oh, we had another guy named Sean. Right there, Rick Chartrar. Oh, yeah, they were. No, that was a little bit later. Okay. So we went to Philadelphia and we had a big brawl one night. And we had tough guys that weren't going to play on our NHL team. And, 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 you know, from that point on, we had good respect. They respected that we could play that kind of hockey. But when we played them in 70 and 76, I think it was because, you know, uh, well, I mean, the, the Flyers had won two years in a row. But, you know, our young guys were really developing. The Canada Cup in '76 was was played in you know in the fall, and I think the reason we did well there is because you know we had won the the Stanley Cup in, in the in the spring, and we just had we had every kind of player for we, we had uh, we had tough players, we had skilled players, we had Hall of Fame players. I mean that was all because of the way they built the team. So Philadelphia, yes, it was a tight series, and Larry Robinson was equivocally one of the toughest fighters of, 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 of any team I ever was connected with, but we didn't want him fighting, of course. And, and he put a big body check on Gary Dornhofer, you're right. And that seemed to change the tempo of the series so we could just play hockey. And uh, in their finals, in the finals, it's a lot more difficult for the tough teams to play their style because the penalty can be costly. Um, I know they they had a they had a good break. Of, I mean, knocking off Boston in, in, in the year in the, in the, in the first uh, Buffalo first in seventy 
74, and then Boston, and that was a big upset. But, you know, I, I don't have all the facts in that series because, I mean, I wasn't in it. Scotty, you know, I love the fact that you're talking about Larry Robinson. Jim, you got to hear this. That hit on Gary Dornhofer, it yeah. broke the boards in the forum. That wow. hit actually broke the boards in the forum. Wow. And I think Larry got a penalty for boarding on that play, if I remember correctly, Scotty. Literally. <laughs> no, it was, probably, it's amazing. Probably, yeah, that, in those days, it's probably a two-minute minor. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and, and no video review or nothing. <laughs> yeah, Larry, we didn't – you know, he got tested at the odd time. Um yeah, he got in a big fight in that series too, but he could really, he was so big, Larry could defend himself. And, and he, you know, I, I don't think he really enjoyed fighting, but he's one of those players that when you do line up against him, he had the big edge of size. And, and he, and you know, we were always concerned that he was going to get in a fight and, and, you know, with some player that didn't play much, but could really fight and get injured or something. I was always after him. That we don't want you fighting players that, uh, you know that aren't really players like yourself but uh, so that's that's what i think happened jimmy i gotta go down this road this is really important yeah. for scotty one of the most memorable goals in scotty's tenure with the montreal Canadiens was in 1979 in the game seven semi-final against the boston bruins and yeah, he go there. gets the puck it's one of the best calls ever from the late danny gallivan scotty can you take us through what's set up that power play opportunity for the Montreal Canadiens and how much went into it in terms of coaching brain power and adjustments? Well, you know, we had a big, a big uh, three years in a row with, with when Don Cherry was coaching the Bruins. And we, like you mentioned, we beat Philly uh, four straight in 70, 76. Then we, we ran into the Bruins and they were really coming along we're pretty fortunate all the teams that played Boston after Bobby or couldn't play anymore. But so what happened is we, we, we beat Boston four straight. We won the cup in Boston, I think. And, uh, you know, we were, we were a shade ahead of them for sure. The next year it went six games and, and mm -hmm. that would be in 78. And that was a tight series. A couple of them went into overtime and, uh, they were coming close. And then 79, they were even better. And, uh, that, that series was not the Stanley Cup final, but it was the conference final. And uh, it went into the seventh, we had the, the advantage of the seventh game, but it, there was a lot of strange goals in that game. And then we lost Gila Point in the second, in the third period, he, he hurt his groin, he couldn't come back. As you know, in those days, we didn't, same as every team in the league, if you had a guy, even like Bobby Orr would play 40 minutes a game, we weren't playing three pairs of defensemen, and nobody was. So, anyways, we got in into the, into a real problem. Uh, I think I think it was Rick Middleton scored a, a strange goal. He, he was behind the net and he put it off of Ken Dryden's pad and it went in to give him the lead uh, at the time. And and there was only maybe five minutes left, but they got a penalty. We started to double shift because I, one of the better shadows that I ever had to coach against was Donald Marcotte. He was a great player for Boston. He could knock out any right winger. Like there was some good ones, like my great ones, Mike Bossy, Skeela Fleur. It was tough to play against Don because he was really like a Bob Gainey type. And, and you know, he, he, there was no room. And when, when he went on the ice, he knew his job. Well, we started double shifting Guy. And I don't know the confusion on the Boston bench. Who I don't think it was Don, but two people, like Guy went out there 
and I think it was they had a good good system that he was going to play every shift against Guy Lafleur. So we double shifted Guy Lafleur, and somehow it was a mix up, and mm-hmm. and he went on, and I don't even know the other player for Boston that went on. They were on for maybe twenty thirty seconds, and John D'Amico in history, one of the great linesmen of all time. He was a bit slow. I think he was. It's a crucial time in the game when you're talking the last two minutes of a game, and and you know finally uh, they played with six players, six skaters, gave them the bench penalty, and then uh, that was the famous goal that they show. I mean, the most famous goal is Bobby Orr's goal. I was on the other bench on that one. Yeah, Mother's I, Day. <laughs> I was in the on the right bench, but no, we. It was a great play. Larry Robinson gave it to Lafleur and. and I still see it like they show that goal quite a bit. It's real close to an offside because Jacques Lemaire, Jacques Lemaire got the puck right at the Boston blue line, mm-hmm. and and you know I'm not sure. I mean I, I we can't slow it down or anything now, and you can't. It doesn't matter. But he dropped it back, and it was a perfect shot along the ice, right in the corner. He had done that on, on a few occasions, and that tied the game. And then we. You know, it's, it's a strange part of the game, like, like Gila Point had gone, and Claude Ruel was a wonderful man, and he, you know, he wasn't on the bench, though. He always sat, sat upstairs, and he came down before the overtime, and, and, and it, you know, we were we were such a great friends, and in his, in his broken, he always spoke English, and I tried to speak a little French, and he said to me in the room, what we do now, because we knew how much we played those three defensemen, I said, Claude, we've got to play Larry and Serge. I, I'm going to start them in the overtime. And I, I'm going to make sure that one is on the ice all the time. Oh, he said, well, we, but we can't start them. There. I said, no, one's going to have to stay on. Yeah. I mean, I, I said, Serge will stay on. He doesn't rush a lot. And that, and he he said, yeah, but it's going to be. I said, I said, we have to gamble. If we don't win in 10 minutes, we're going to get maybe tired. But I want I don't want to lose trying to win a fourth cup. With, with not, with, I want to lose with my best guys. If they're mm-hmm. tired or not, that's the way it is. So we were so fortunate because we did score a goal right about ten minutes. Uh, Lambert, because uh, you know they had some chances too, and not not a lot. It was a tight uh, ten minute overtime, but Boston was that was the closest they came. But you know, being swept, then going six games, and now having us on the ropes. I mean, and I know Don Cre- uh, Cherry gets criticized a lot for having too many men on the ice. But Pierre, you coached. I've coached a long time. Most of the times, the players know who's supposed to go on, but mm-hmm. somebody else jumps on. Yep. Jimmy, by the way, Scotty talked about that goal by Yvonne Lambert. What a play by young Mario Tremblay, going wide around the Boston defense, uh-huh. cross-crease pass. Scotty, you know, people forget this about Mario Tremblay. One of the first 18-year-old players that ever played for the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, he was a tough guy, and he was a good player, and that was a key moment in that series when he made that cross-crease feed to Yvonne Lambert. Well, we had good teams prior, but we I think what we did, uh, with, the Canadians had players a lot coming up, but the, our team changed one year. I'm not sure the exact year. It might have been 74 or 75, but... Doug Riseborough and Mario Tremblay were drafted in the same draft, and they went and played it with our team in Halifax. And, you know, we started off the season, and we I thought we were getting, I mean, we were really skilled players, but we were getting pushed around a little bit. And, and when they came up, 
and we put them with Yvon Lambert. And I, I keep telling people the most important players on some teams, and it was like us in Montreal, is your role players. I mean, they mean so much to a team. And even now they're talking in the NHL, it's hard to get a lot of good players on, on the team now with all the rules and cap. But, you know, if you get an edge on the bottom six, you, that's what we did. We had, we had Mario and we had Doug Risebrough and Lambert. And, and later on when I got to Detroit, I mean, they, these players don't get credit. Uh, I had Draper, Maltby, and McCarty, and then Coaster came along. And, you know, those jobs are so hard. They don't get the money of the, of the top six. They get 11, 12, 13 minutes. And, Pierre, they're so important to a team. And I, I always look at those players and say, what a job. They have to accept their role. I mean, if they, if they, if they, I guess a lot of guys are tried in that role and say, I want to play more and I want to get more money now. So it, that's why it's hard to keep on your team together. But I give a lot of credit to all the good teams when they, I mean, we, I mean, I go to all the lightning games. I've been going here since I got here in 05 and I, I've seen this team develop. And I mean, you know, in their cup runs, I mean, they had three or four, but the two cup wins, I mean, those extra players, they're still around now. They're Goodrow and, and, and Yanni Gord. Now they've lost Palat and they've lost Kalorn. They're still going because they have Hall of Fame players, eh? That, and they're, they're going to be close again. But, boy, those, those extra players that know their role, to me, um, they're so important. Jimmy, you got to have some questions for the legendary Coach Bowman. I do, and that was a great segue because – you know, Pierre, we were talking off air how much I, I loved the Red Wings, and, and those, that's when I fell in love with them was when Scotty took over there. And, and, and Scotty, I want to go back to then, you know, you guys, and Pierre has mentioned this on, on our podcast recently, when you guys lose to, I believe it was San Jose, right, in 94. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. You, know, you, sat with, you sat with Stevie Y, and then you also just, you kind of changed the – the philosophy of the team and you bring up just now, I think it's great that you brought that up, the how important bottom six guys are and how important a two-way game is. So take us back to sort of that, that transformation that that team made before they became a dynasty and won those three cups. Could score goals. When I was in, Detroit, I was in um, Pittsburgh and then I didn't know a lot about the Red Wings because we're in different divisions, different conference. But mm -hmm. when I got there, the team, the team, always were shut down in the playoffs. That's the problem with them. And they, they could score goals. They had a lot of the same type of players, good goal scorers, get in the playoffs. They dry up a little bit. And, and you know, when you start with players, you've got to get players that are, that are not just offensive players. And that's, we were fortunate. We were able to make some changes. And, uh, you know, we, we made some tough trades. I mean, you know, it doesn't happen that easy. Uh, we had, we had a, a good defenseman, Steve Chason, who brought him over, Mike Vernon, of course, and he's in, he just got in the Hall of Fame. But then what really changed our team around is we, we, we traded a really good scorer, Ray Shepard, and we got Igor Larionov. That was probably the – I mean, we had no idea we were going to have a Russian five at that time, although, although he was the last piece we got. We didn't make the trade. We made the trade because he single-handedly beat us in 93. He yeah. was in San Jose. He, they didn't have a Russian five, but boy, they had Yarpenlov and they had uh, Makarov and they had Norton on defense and Rosalinch. They they played we they played keep away and then and, and, and he came and that's that was what happened is but 
our, our, our checkers really meant a lot to our team. They could kill penalties. But I always admired those players because, they, and, and I think even last year, I know Jimmy a lot, Jimmy Montgomery, and they, you know, when you think about the Bruins, they did, they did have the top lines, but they had role players that, that meant a lot. And now, of course, those role players have, have accelerated into more, more premier players. I mean, you, you look at what happens to players when they, they start slowly. And I mean, the one player in Boston that I keep watching, and I saw him play down here a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I don't remember him too much when he started, but Charlie Coyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's become a pretty. I mean, you know, he's self he's self improved with the with the coaching giving him a chance. Now he's 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 coming to his limelight. But those extra players, I, I take my hat off to them. Yeah, and you had. I mean, I think of uh, Mike Knubel was great for you guys in some of those runs there in Detroit. A guy like that. You you brought up the Russian five there, okay? And and Scotty, obviously, you've been a man mm-hmm. that's learned so much about the game as you've gone along, as you were just discussing, and then applying it. When you when you have them on the team there, and you're, you you mentioned puck possession just now, what was it like as a coach adapting to the players and then them adapting to you when you had that skill right there? I was always with the time we put nobody. I I think I'm not sure if it was Slav. I think it was more Slava Fatisov, but because he you know he he was the one that bugged us to get Larry Onlop. He said he he, okay. he wants the he wants to come, but you know he. He was, he was always coming to me and asking me, you know, if you see something. I said, no. I said, Slava, I don't know what you're doing. I, I said, I can't, I can't help you. I know. He, he's the kid with me. But they, I was always afraid when I put them together the first time. It, it's an amazing game. I do remember a lot about it. We played in Calgary. The other team had 12 shots in the game. Wow. And, and I played them so much because they were so different. It was a new toy. And I, I couldn't believe what I, I did not believe what I could see. How I mean, I did play against Russians and lost a lot of times to them in national games. But these guys were were unbelievable. But I was always leery of playing them regularly for two reasons. One, I didn't want the other teams to maybe try to catch on because I was going to use them in the playoffs. Right. And the other one was the culture of the team. We we had some really good Hall of Fame. American-born players, Canadian-born players, and you know, you, when you're running a team, you, you don't want to have players take over the team. I mean, they weren't going to do it, but I, I, I had to sort of juggle a little bit, and I didn't play them all the time, and that's the reason I didn't play them. Maybe, maybe I should have, but they didn't complain. They were happy in there. I mean, we had they were veterans like Sergey Fedorov. He had been he'd been there right from the beginning, and Slava Kozlov came. Uh, uh, constant Kinoff and Fedorov came around the same time. That's great. Here, Jimmy, I was just going to ask Scotty about one of his experiments in Detroit was putting Sergei Fedorov on defense. He wanted him to get more ice time. Scotty, can you tell us how that experiment worked out? Yeah. Sergei's dad was a coach, uh, Victor, the late Victor, and he he, he really, he, you know, he, he pushed his son a lot and it's it's funny, like when they first started putting ice time and they bring the sheets in, like Victor would get one, and if it if he didn't get twenty minutes, he was down, and he would, you know, and then he would tell Sergey, "You got to play more." So it was so bad that when the guy brought the sheets in, I used to grab them all. So none, none of the first it worked for about a month, 
I didn't want any of it. But anyways, because they weren't as accurate as I thought they were because we had a guy doing our own. So anyways, we got two bad injuries on defense that were going to last for five or six weeks. And, I, and, I, and, and he was so good a skater forwards and backwards. In fact, later on, I remember, remember, remember talking to Wayne Gretzky uh, about, and he's a big admirer of Sergei. And, you know, he told me something which made, and he makes a lot of sense. And he said, he said, Scotty, I could never even attempt to play defense. Neither could Mario, neither could Yager. He said, it's amazing that this guy could play. I said, well, he's a good back skater. He said, yeah, but, you know, when he, I, and I guess when it goes back, when he first came over from Russia, I wasn't there. Brian Murray and those, and those they used him as a defensive center. He was an unusual Russian player that in his, in his youth, like 19, 20, 21, he was, he was so good defensively, and he, but he wasn't as good offensively, but he developed so quick. So, I mean, we, we, I said, Sergey, would you like to try defense? And I wasn't, I mean, I, I, I put it with Nick Lidstrom first to see, I mean, how is he going to be? Well, after one or two games... I said, he's going to have his own partner, you know, and, and he liked it, but he still liked to play center. And our defense came back, but he could have, he could, I think that Sergei Fedorov could have been like a, imagine in today's game, the way that the game has changed so much that he could take that puck and, and take off. Like, I mean, he, he, he was such a strong skater. And that's why, I mean, I put him on, on defense because we had and we also, you know, we, I wanted to try to make sure that he gets extra, because we had good centermen. We, we had Sergey and, and Steve Eiserman. We had Chris Draper and Igor Larionov. Uh, you know, there's only so much, there's only 60 minutes in the game. <laughs> Jimmy, I got to tell you this story, and I'm so happy that Scotty's here. Scotty, we won't take up too much more of your time. Jimmy, in 2002, Scotty coached his last playoff game. It was his 223rd playoff victory game five versus Carolina the night before the game I'm sitting in my hotel room and the phone rings and it's Scott and he says what are you doing I said nothing I'm just getting my notes ready for tomorrow he goes I'll pick you up at the hotel in about 10 minutes so we get in the car we drive I go where are we going he goes just button up let me talk so, <laughs> so we start driving and we're going north of the city of Detroit and I go I've never been here before and we end up at this beautiful place called the Gross Point Yacht Club. And mm -hmm. we pull in, and there's this gentleman that comes out with a huge hat. It turns out he's the Commodore of the club. And Scotty says, I brought you here for a reason. And we go upstairs. We're escorted to a private room. I'll never forget this night as long as I live. And he says, I'm going to tell you something in this room, but you can't tell anybody else. So I'm sitting on this secret, and he says, when we win tomorrow, and he wasn't even thinking loss. He says, when we win tomorrow, I'm retiring. I'm putting my skates on, and I'm going to skate around Joe Lewis, just like the players do with the cup. It's going to be my last game. Scotty, I will never forget that night as long as I live. And my one question to you is, how were you so darn sure you were going to win? <laughs> no, I, I decided what really, Pierre, my mind was made up. Uh, we, we had an Olympic break. And we went down to uh, it's a long one too, ten days, and we had a, a mini training camp in Orlando. And and you know when you're coaching and you're working in the NHL, you, you, your family it's important, but your wife has to take over. So my kids were now maybe in high school, 
So we took them all, the four of them, we had a great visit for about five, six days. Then we had our five day training camp. And at that time is when I said, eventually you're going to have to leave. I was just turning 70 and I said, you know, I've had a nice career. I, I said, I, I would, I would like to, my, my, uh, my hero was always Toe Blake. And I said, the thing I always admired about Toe is he left and won his last game. And I said, I'd like to be a coach that wins my last game. Most coaches lose their last game and get, get booted out. So that's why I did it. But I didn't even tell my wife. I just said, you know, I'm thinking of leaving, but I'm not sure. But I mean, I, I just, I just, I wanted to put pressure on myself that we got to win this game or otherwise I'm going to have to coach another year. But I didn't <laughs> want to have a parade around the, the league and I didn't want anybody to, you know, I just, I just felt it was not the way to, to go out. I just wanted to do my job and, and leave. And then I said, I couldn't play and I couldn't put skates on. So I had the trainer, I said, well, actually I had him primed up, uh, Paul Boyer. <laughs> I said, when it, if it gets down to the last minute, and I said, we're close. I want my skates ready. And he had them beside the bench. Like we, you know, that because we, we were playing, um, um, we were playing against Carolina. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we had a two, but, we, but they were pretty tight games. We had a two one lead. And then when Brendan Shanahan scored the empty net, I said, okay, I can start lacing up. <laughs> That's why when it was over, I had them ready. It's so funny you bring this up here because I, you know, in researching for this interview earlier today, I came across, uh, and I don't know if you remember it, Scotty. I think it was CTV um, did a, a profile when uh, when Ken Dryden wrote the book on you, and they they were pumping up the release of that book, and they were interviewing Chris Chelios, and he brought that exact thing up. And Paranoid yeah. didn't plan this. That's so weird. Uh -huh. And he and Chris was like. Yeah, and Scotty's skating around, and we had no idea he was going to do this. And he's saying it's the last game. Yeah. And we thought he was just joking us, and but it was. So it, it's it's interesting you brought that up. Yeah, I know, I know, uh, Jimmy, that you you are a good uh, Bostonian, and I have my daughter that lives there now with two boys. And okay. um, what I've always thought it, it's it's amazing how things go back and forth. But when I was growing up in Montreal, I was six years old. Yeah, be about. It's when they won their two cups in uh, in nineteen thirty. Is it thirty nine and forty one? I think they won the two yes. cups, and I was six years old. My dad would let me listen to the radio. There was an announcer in Boston called Frank Ryan, and we had such a signal in Montreal. I would listen to the first period of the game. I don't know how I got hooked up, but my my you know you're a kid, you listen to the games. And and Milt Schmidt and and uh, Dumart and Bauer were the crowd line, but they had a second line center named Bill Cowley, number ten, and wow. he he actually won the scoring title later on in forty five forty six. But when the Bruins five of them went to the service in in late in the middle of the season or near the end of the season, he was too old to go in. But he was he was a guy that my mother got me a Boston Bruin jersey, so I. I was all Boston for about 10 years until I yeah. started playing youth hockey. But it's so funny because every time we used to play Boston or even when I meet now, it's, it's amazing because I'm, you know, I keep up talking to Bobby Orr a lot and uh, he's a wonderful man. And I call him on his birthday and he calls me on mine and, you know, and then I know Jimmy Montgomery because Pierre knows I, I played sports with Jimmy's dad in Montreal. 
He was a football, high school football player and, and a, a junior football player. And Jimmy's dad passed away three years ago, and that was his father's name, Jimmy. Okay. So I got a, okay. I got a Boston connection. I got my daughter there, and uh, it's strange. I see them running around with Boston Bruin jerseys on, you know, and yeah. they're, they're Bostonians. Bill Colley, what amazing. It, we, we were talking about him a lot because I, I was lucky oh. enough to be. I was on the selection committee, um, Scotty, to, oh, good. to the all-time Bruins. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a centennial season, and we were talking about oh. Bill Colley a lot. Record, I, I huh? even knew enough about him. His, I mean, he was amazing. Point, what, he nearly averaged two points a game. Yeah. I didn't know that. I was and he carried but, them when they went when the, yeah. the crowd line went away. He really carried yeah. that team. You know, you know, the best thing they ever said about Bill Cowley, though, was because he played during the wartime. He was older than the other guys. They said, Bill Cowley made more wings than Boeing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. They put different lines. I don't remember all the guys. I know he played with a guy, Lyle Wiseman. But I followed the Bruins. I mean, I think one reason I like to follow them, too, they won the two cups in 39 and 41. And then yeah. later on, later on, I had a good attachment with a player that I don't think ever got the credit that he ever deserved, although he's is, is retired, Dick Clapper, number yes. five. He was the president of our team in Peterborough. And I mean, Milt Schmidt, on many occasions, told me, you know, we had some tough players on our team. And everybody remembers Eddie Shore, because he was a real tough cookie. And he yep. said, I'm not sure if they met. He said, Dick Clapper had such a long fuse. He didn't, you know, I don't know if you know the story, but he played, he played forward. He made the all-star team in 19... 33 or 34, scored over 28, 30 goals. And then in 19, when Clapper, when Shore went out, they put him back on defense. He made the second all-star team, a plain defense. They never said that. I mean, I used to try to talk to him about hockey and he was always, you know, he, he was a wonderful man. He was our president, but, you know, he got in a lot of trouble in the league in 1936. I think Pierre might know about this, but it was a big brawl. And Clarence Campbell was the referee, and uh, he he punched the referee. He did, well, he was trying to punch a player, and he landed right on the ref. I mean, he was such a great player. People were talking about a one-year suspension. I mean, it happened near the end of the season. It's in his book that he wrote. So then what they did, they had a hearing in Montreal, and uh, fortunately, Clarence Campbell had been a Rhodes Scholar, and they had, they all were at the meeting and he said, uh, just as much my fault as, as Clapper's. He said, I told him to get out of here, you son of a, the three told him. And they gave, they fined him a hundred dollars. The great Paul Newman in Slapshot, if you remember the line, it's one of the best lines, the all-time greats, Dick Clapper, Eddie Shore, Toll Blake. Come on, those are the all-time greats. Paul <laughs> yeah. Newman knew that too, Scotty. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It, yeah, I, I got a connection with Boston, Dick Clapper. And I, I, I really got to know, and what a humble man, because I was on different teams, but I really enjoyed any time I could, because I admired him as a player, Milt Schmidt. I oh, mean, yeah. he, I, I saw, the, I saw him here. play. Salt I mean, there's no, no player, like if you could re reincarnate a player, I mean, you know, I still think Gordie Howe is, is really hard to beat complete. Because offense, defense, and toughness. And toughness, and yeah. Milt, Milt Schmidt, nobody would – he only had a few fights in the league. 
and that's the reason is he didn't lose any. <laughs> Nobody wanted to try. <laughs> It's great well, stuff. Jimmy, this has been amazing. Scotty, we cannot thank you enough for your oh, time. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much. Always Good luck with your Scotty. podcast. I liked, right, your one, I, I liked your one with Greg Brown because, you know, I, I'm pretty friendly with his brother, Doug. And actually, we drafted, drafted Greg in Buffalo. That's another guy Bucky Kane spotted being from Boston. Oh, yeah. and, but it was hard for guys in those. Your team wasn't that strong. But I know, I know the reports on him as a coach, what he did. And you had it on the podcast and the family and, and, and Doug came down, like he was, he was with the Bruins on their father's trip. Mm -hmm. And he yeah. came down because Patrick w played the, one of the two games in Florida. That's so right. They're a wonderful family. Good yeah, luck guys. Thanks, All right. Scotty. Thanks a lot, Bye. Scotty. Appreciate it. Bye. Sure. Bye. Bye. Scotty Bowman joining us here on the eye test. And well, you know, here, people always say to us, uh, you know, how lucky we are to be doing what we're doing. And we are. But it's sometimes I think, you know, in the heat of the moment and, you know, the grind of the job, you kind of forget that. Those are the moments that remind you of it. So there's so many points that he brought up and they're so lucid. I mean, you just think about the amount of time he spent on the road and his recall is amazing. Full disclosure, I lived and was roommates with the man for two years. And, you know, I think it's important for people to understand as great as a hockey person that Scotty is, far better friend, a most amazing husband, phenomenal father. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, I've seen a lot of the stuff that he used to do for his family when we were working together in Pittsburgh. And I'll give you an example, Jimmy, we would have a game on, let's say, a Saturday afternoon. Uh, in Pittsburgh, and the team would be going somewhere on Sunday. Scotty would get in his car Saturday, drive to Buffalo from Pittsburgh, spend Saturday night there having dinner with his family, go to church with them on Sunday morning, and then meet the team Sunday night, wow. wherever we were. And, and this wasn't just once or twice. This happened over the course of a year. And and I that's just one example. I mean, just as a friend, um, we talk hockey most of the time when we're together, but just the loyalty and the camaraderie and the life lessons and the mentorship, mm -hmm. you can never repay that. So the only thing I try to do is pay it forward to other young coaches. And Scotty used to tell me all the time, I learned from Toe Blake and I learned from Sam Pollock and I learned from Frank Selke Sr. And I learned from Lynn Patrick and so all those life lessons he learned from them, he passed on to some of us, and I've tried to pass those on. But I can just tell you this right now. Um, he's one. He's a living legend, number one. And he's the best coach in the history, I think, of all professional sport. Forget hockey, all professional sport. And I say that with respect to Don Shula, Vince Lombardi, all the great managers in baseball, all the great coach, Red Arback in basketball. I don't think – anybody has won as much as he has as a coach. No, they haven't. And also just the amount of the different generations that he's coached Pierre is amazing. And the way the game changes so much every decade or every five years and even more, he just adjusts. And, and you know, that, that I think is, is one of his most amazing accomplishments is when you, you can talk to him about the pointers of coaching in any era including right now. And that, that's what I love talking to him about. It's just, it's, I learned so much every time I speak to that man.
he used to tell me all the time, I coached in five decades, and he did, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and into 2002. That's five decades. And he said every single one of those decades, the youth were different. Yeah. Everything was different. And so he had to adjust. And one of the things he did is he studied what his children did. Now, obviously, they were younger back in the 60s and 70s, but in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, they weren't. And so it was kind of interesting uh, when he would tell me that stuff. And he always had a plan for everything. And and so I think a lot of that probably came from the attention to detail of Sam Pollock. Yes. Uh, Mr. Pollock was amazing. You know, I had a chance to know him early in my career. He wasn't working in the league anymore, but I spoke to him on numerous uh, occasions. I think some of that was set up by Scotty, but pretty amazing. Um, Jimmy, this has been a ton of fun. I mean, this is what our eighth or ninth show. Yeah. Um, this was one of the great opportunities. I'm so grateful to Scotty, and I know you are too. And the fact that he even acknowledged the Greg Brown interview, I think, is really cool. I know. I know. The important eyes are watching, and we appreciate all you out there as well. Pierre, uh, we'll have another one coming on, another good guest on Friday too. I mean, no Scotty Bowen, but he's doing a heck of a job down in college hockey, and that's great Carville of UMass. I'm looking forward to that. Well, I can tell you one thing right now. Scotty Bowman helped draft Greg Carville with the Pittsburgh Penguins. I was there sitting right next there you to go. him. We, we, we drafted Carville in Pittsburgh in the supplemental draft in, uh, I'm going to say, 1991. Wow. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> it's all connected so to Scotty. Scotty's always had an eye out for Greg. He's always been a huge fan of Greg's and, um, you know, obviously went in the national championship and coaching great players at UMass and, great players at St. Lawrence and doing some winning at St. Lawrence too. Carvel's a phenomenal coach. He's a great person. Um, I'm proud of the relationship I've had with him over time and I can't wait to speak to him on Friday. That's going to be a good time, but thank you for setting this up here. And uh, Jimmy Murphy, Pierre McGuire here on another edition of the eye test. We'll talk to you on Friday. And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the eye test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy on YouTube, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.